Hear the word of God from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint Church. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. I know worship is a little different. Um, I feel like it's different every week, and we always say that at the lead of every sermon or introduction to every service. I hope and pray that you can still worship and receive the Word of God with open ears and open minds so that our hearts can be conformed to His. I know it's not ideal, but His Spirit is still at work. 
There have been numerous times throughout the course of history, throughout the course of Christendom, that people worshipped in not ideal circumstances, and this is probably the least of those circumstances. So may we rally together, may we body together, ask the Spirit to still move in the midst of these times in our hearts as a church body. Today's going to be our last sermon in our quick little mini-series that we had on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in a larger series, and we're going to be in this larger series for the next few months on the books of Matthew, mainly the book of Matthew with the book of Isaiah mixed in between. We spent the last few weeks of this Sermon on the Mount, and in all reality, we could have spent five weeks, ten weeks on this little series because it's just so rich and so full. And um, we only just kind of had to do a little survey of it instead of really kind of diving deep into it. I hope you're gleaning so much from this great, great discourse. This is Jesus' first major message that he gives us. Announcing the kingdom very much like Moses did as he was explaining to the Israelites that they were becoming a new nation and entering into a new promised land. Jesus is doing what Moses did. He's calling his people to become a new nation, a new kingdom, as they live out in the promised land. And so this is an incredible discourse given here in Matthew. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount's location in the book of Matthew was very intentional. David Turner says this about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' authoritative teaching about the way believers should live today. Those who repented when they heard the gospel preached by John the Baptist, and then Jesus in chapters 3 and 4, needed to know how to live under God's saving rule, the kingdom of heaven. As Jewish Christians, they especially needed to know how Jesus' teaching related to the Old Testament and that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They needed to put physical needs and material possessions into proper perspective. Spiritual discernment and prayer are priority matters. In case anyone was listening carelessly without desire for obedience, they were to be warned to enter through the narrow gate to avoid fruitless trees and to build on the rock. In all this, they would realize that full obedience to these high standards would be attained through the future coming of the kingdom. And so he's showing this, this idea, this passage in the scripture is, is showing that this was a rule, an authoritative teaching on how people are to live in this kingdom. It's like a new constitution, a new bill of rights. He's saying, this is your nation. This is your kingdom. This is what it looks like. And God is calling you to live in this manner. And I love how Jesus starts the whole discourse on living in the kingdom. He starts with blessed. He starts with the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who are poor. And he establishes a fact from the very beginning. He establishes that blessedness does not come from what you think you have. It comes from your relationship with God and your existence in this kingdom. And he closes his discourse here on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. It closes with his ultimate authority statement. The very end of chapter 7, it says this, The crowds were amazed because he taught as one who has authority. It's like Matthew is leaving you with this question, is, do you see? Do you see what the crowd saw? Do you see that Jesus is teaching as one who has authority? Do you see Jesus as your true authority? Do you see him and what he spoke here as the foundation of your faith? This question, whether Jesus is the authority or foundation of your faith, is fleshed out actually through the rest of the book of Matthew. It almost feels like the rest of Matthew, the way Jesus lives, does his miracles, the teachings that he gives. It's as if this is showing that Jesus is the authority. He's establishing it over and over again, accepting this is the authority. As well as showing what living in the kingdom is like. Now I've said this before, that sometimes I don't understand the miracles Jesus chose to do in light of the reason most people give for why Jesus did his miracles. What I mean by this is I've heard it said over and over again that Jesus performed his miracles to show people who he is and his power and his authority. Well, I get that. 
But if it was me and my purpose is to show my power and my authority, there would be drastically different miracles being performed. There would be like some super high flying by me being done with like my hand like this flying around or dragon shooting fireworks that look like me in the sky. All sorts of awesome stuff. But making more wine, healing lepers, making the blind see, calming the storm. Eh, I mean, those are cool and all, but those who quite have the same oomph of the, what I was talking about. But the reason Jesus performed the miracles he did was to show his power, his authority, and what the kingdom was to look like. It was a kingdom that was made to recreate what was broken in creation. It was to establish a true reign, rule and reign of a humble king. The book of Matthew is proclaiming to all who are reading and hearing that Jesus is king, he is rule and authority, and his miracles show what type of kingdom he's going to have. He's establishing a king, but he's a king of healing, of recreating what was broken in creation, what was lost. He's a king that will bring his people to relationship with God. Not a selfish king like me who's going to fly around like Superman and make dragons appear. But a king who heals the sick, who restores the leper, who provides for his people. And Jesus is the king, and we get to be his kingdom citizens. So the question for you and for the original readers of this text that is he- hitting them at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Do you see Jesus as your authority, your foundation, your entryway to being a part of the kingdom of heaven? Is he your standard? Is that what you think? Or, or are you like the Pharisees? See, if you look back and jump to the beginning of chapter 7, in this passage, it's, it's, it's a very famous passage, isn't it? This is a passage on judging. Everybody knows this passage on judging. Everybody likes to quote it, misquote it. They like to quote it, especially when somebody's doing it to them, but not when they're doing it to others. And everybody knows this passage. It's, it's often misused, overused, and a little misunderstood. And used often, maybe a little incorrectly, while also correctly. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that it's so much more on the surface than what we take it for. And on the surface, it's a good teaching. It's good for what we take it for as well. But I believe it's so much more than that. I feel like it ties back to this original question that I'm asking here at the end of chapter 7. Is Jesus your true authority and your foundation of faith? Here's this passage where it talks about, you know, do not judge one another, right? You know, don't, don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own. Take the plank out of yours first, and then you can help your brother with the speck. And most people take this very much at face value, which is okay. They say, hey, we're all hypocrites. So, you know, before you help your brother out or point out what your brother's going or dealing with or point out the sin in other people's lives, look at yourself. Evaluate your own heart. Look at the own sin that's going on in your own life, and then maybe you could help your brother. Which is all very true and very good. And honestly, something that I wish we all practiced a lot more. I wish we all understood before we judge others how much sin is in our own heart and what hypocrites we are. And so it's a good practice and a good teaching, but there's so much more to this, I believe. I think ultimately and foundationally, what this story, this illustration is alluding to is what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees are judging others. They're pointing out the specks in others' eyes, not looking at themselves. But the reason they're doing this, I believe, is because they're doing this as a way of finding their own foundation of faith, their own standard of judgment. The way they feel better about themselves, the way they feel like they can have, exist in a relationship with God. They can feel better about themselves by judging others and saying, well, I mean, I'm not as bad as those people. I mean, look at what they do. They, they do this. They lie. They cheat. They don't keep the Sabbath. They're holy. So God must like me. Right? I do these things. And so they're finding an identity, a confidence, and foundation by judging others. 
They notice their specs so they can feel better about themselves. And Jesus is calling out this hypocrisy. He's establishing the fact that we're all hypocrites. Every one of us has planks. Every one of us has specs. But what does that do? I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, Jesus leaves it open to say, okay, we're all hypocrites, but then what? I mean, if we're all hypocrites, can we take our own speck out? Can we take our own planks out? Can we stop being hypocrites? And ultimately, you all know this answer is no. We can't save ourselves. We can't stop. Uh, we, we don't know really how to take the plank out of our own eye. So what do we do with this? And not only do we have specs, but Jesus gives this odd statement about do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will be trampled them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And that seems so out of place. Going from this understandable idea of not judging to this random verse about pigs and dogs. I mean, if you're like me and you're reading this, you're sort of like tracking with God. You're like, you're like tracking with this passage. You're like, I get you, Matthew. I'm following along with what you're saying a little bit. I'm not judging. We're all hypocrites. I get it. But then all of a sudden there's passage on pigs and dogs. You're like, huh? What are you talking about? And by the way, if this doesn't confuse me at all, kudos to you, because I was seriously, I'm like, what is going on here? And a very common interpretation of this passage is basically saying, don't waste your time trying to convince or to give something holy and sacred to people who won't receive. You know, it's, it's almost kind of like, don't, don't waste your time trying to argue politics with people who just are no willing to hear anything that you're trying to say and only have a firmly set in their own conspiracy theories. Right? That's almost how most people interpret this passage. The American idiom about casting pearls to pigs comes from this. In other words, don't give something nice or waste your time with people who won't appreciate it. And I understand that interpretation. There's some truth to that as well. But, but I think it's a little different from that. I think this is still connected to the idea of judging earlier. What I believe Jesus is saying here is don't give yourself to outside judgments or authorities to determine your foundation with God. Let me explain how I got to that. You see, the terms dogs would refer to the Gentiles or people who are not Jews. That's how they would refer to Gentiles. They'd call them dogs. Or as well as using the term pigs. Very intentional language is using the dog, the term for Gentiles and the term pigs, which is considered dirty or unclean, pointing to people or culture outside of the Jewish people. So I propose then what this passage is saying is that the Israelites may try to use at first, their personal holiness, being better than others as their foundation, being able to keep the law better than others, being pharisaical as one means of kind of saying, I deserve entry into the kingdom of heaven. I am a part of this kingdom. It's kind of earned their righteousness. And if that doesn't work because they have planks. Well, then the others might try to use outside cultural definitions of righteousness or standards. They might, they might use philosophies <clears throat> or outside religions or outside means and norms and uh, relative uh, statements to say, this is how I will determine my righteousness and my standing before God. And what this passage is saying is, but that will just lead you to be trampled. You see, Jesus is establishing that our own way of trying to find a firm foundation for our acceptance by God and into heaven fails. Trying anything, any religion ultimately will fail. We need help. And I love how from there, Jesus goes into the help that we need. He's establishing the fact that we can't do it on our own. Our own holiness won't make it. Outside holiness won't make it. Outside standards won't make it. But he says, we need help. And I love how Jesus goes into asking, seeking, and knocking. You see, Jesus' discourse here, he's establishing this foundation. He's saying, guys, you're trying to establish yourselves, your ability to judge others as your means of standing in the kingdom. Your foundation for your faith is not going to work. Instead, you need to ask for it. The words ask, seek, and knock are all metaphors for prayer. 
They're not three separate exhortations, but one idea, praying. And that's just a prayer the way we think of prayer now, not the ways the Pharisees did it. The Pharisees would try to show off with their prayers. We sometimes think of a formulaic way of attaining God's will and favor by praying so formally, so beautifully, so eloquently. But it's more akin to how a child asks for something. You need to ask, seek, and knock because that's the foundation of faith. It's something that is given to you when you ask and seek by a good, good father. In verse 9, Jesus explains the foundation of faith even further, making it even clearer. He poses this question about you. If your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? And if he asks for fish, will you give him a snake? Basically saying that if you in your sinful, imperfect state knows how to give good gifts, then how much more will God? And let me tell you something. I know how selfish I am and can be. I know my own heart and I know my weaknesses as a father. But man, oh man, I would move heaven and earth for my boys. I'll do anything I can to get them what they need. And I, I've shared this story before with, with uh, some of you guys. You've probably heard this in the past. But I feel like I need to share it again. It fits so he, well here. Is when I was a little boy, my father um, worked two jobs in Pennsylvania. He spent the day early in the morning. He'd wake up early in the morning for anybody else. And he'd go to a steel plant. And he'd spend all day working at a steel plant. And then he would come home really quickly and grab a quick dinner, say hi to his family. Then he'd go to his second job working at a, as a cook at a restaurant. He would do this six days a week, averaging about five hours of sleep a night. And I remember one day asking my dad for money to go on a, to go on a trip. And it wasn't an important trip. I don't remember actually where we went, actually. But what I do remember so clearly is seeing my dad's hands as he was passing the money to me so I can go on this trip. I think I truly saw his hands for the first time. I saw hands that were broken and ripped and raw from all the work that he did. I saw burns and cuts and pain, and I knew he was in pain. Hands that hurt all the time, but kept on going back to work so that I could have the money to go on a trip. Hands that that didn't give me stone when I asked for bread. My father was nowhere near a perfect father, but he gave me such love and gave me confidence knowing that I was loved by my dad. If he could do that, how much more secure than am I in my heavenly father's love? This passage, this passage is asking you to evaluate where your security and your foundation comes from. Are you looking and turning to the good Father and trusting in His goodness and His love and compassion as our foundation of our faith? Or are you looking and still earning it? Are you still trying to build yourself up by judging others? I know we may profess we didn't earn it, but by the way we judge others, by the way we look to outside security, do we, do we trust? What is your foundation? My people, do you believe that He's a good Father? That trust, that faith in the goodness of our Father needs to be foundational to the way we live and find our identity. That is our authority. And so from here, Jesus turns to the idea of true and false prophets. And those are the ones who are teaching ideas that turn away from the teachings and the right teachings of Jesus. And this idea is to make sure that you're not being led astray. And here's the problem in this idea of true and false prophets. We're taught that we're told not to judge, and then we're told to judge here. So I understand the idea. Wait a minute, we're not supposed to judge others, but then we're supposed to judge the false prophets. I'm not. I'm, I'm so confused. 
But what we're called to do is we judge by fruit. And I don't understand when do we judge by fruit, when do we not judge by fruit, and what is fruit. And but this idea, this is ideas, this is where you're seeking your authority and your foundation. And what Jesus is saying here is that there will be people, ideologies, and even your own mind that will tempt you astray. And Jesus is calling us to people, people to be guard against these ideas and these teachers. He wants us to make sure that we don't turn to the ways of the Pharisees to earn and to be holy in our own mind by judging others, or the way of the Gentiles, or the philosophies of the world. These teachings bear no fruit. They don't, why don't they lead to fruit? Because Jesus says in the book of John that the only way to bear fruit is to be attached to Jesus the vine. The branch doesn't bear fruit unless it's connected to the vine. Jesus is establishing himself as the only source of fruit to be born, the only right teaching. He's establishing himself as the only authority. Guys, can I tell you that religions of this world, your own personal righteousness, your own seeking, your own endeavor, your own strength is never enough. It will lead you astray. Don't let it. This passage says, judge a tree by its fruit, and I love that idea, but what is fruit? How do you judge a prophet by its fruit? And I'd say we look at fruit so many times in the wrong ways in our Western American culture. Right? We look at fruit as an idea of success, right? Is it, is it successful? Is it producing money? Is, is, is it numbers? Is it a fame and accolades? Is it Instagram likes and posts and whatever it may be? But can I tell you what fruit looks like in the Bible, in the economy of the kingdom? It's shown in the Beatitudes. It's shown in the fruits of the Spirit. My people hear me on this. We need to be looking for right fruit. Not for flashiness, but for Christ-like attitude, humility, and the fruits of the Spirit. And from this teaching from the right, the false and true prophets goes into arguably one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you guys, I think we're actually going to allude to this later on in the book of Matthew, but this is one of the hardest passages that people really struggle with. In this passage, it talks about people who have done great things in the name of the Lord, who've done incredible things, and they get to heaven, and once they get there, it's like, oh, wait, I don't know you. And that's a hard passage to sit on, to dwell on, because honestly, if we're real with ourselves, it causes some fear in a lot of people. It causes people to wonder, is, is that me? Is, is it my friends? Is it my family? What does that mean? Who is that? Who are true and false disciples? And what if I'm not one of them? And I believe this passage points back to the very main propositional point that I'm establishing here is that true disciples seek Jesus as our true authority and our foundation of our faith. He's the only way that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's the manner in which we have citizenship in heaven. He's our citizenship test. He's our green card. He's our social security card. He is the way and means we become a citizen of heaven. In verse 21, Jesus describes one who will enter the kingdom as the one who does the will of my Father. But what exactly does that mean? Judging by context, it must mean simply more than just saying, Lord, Lord, because it says people said that and they weren't getting in. And it's supposed to be more than just doing mighty works, right? So how do we even know if we're doing the Father's will? And do we have to do it perfectly? And to see the answer, we need to look at the second time in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has spoken of entering into the kingdom. In Matthew 5.20, it says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so comparing these two passages, we can see that doing the Father's will is possessing a greater righteousness. So greater righteousness than the, the scribe and the Pharisees. And so when Jesus says a righteousness must exceed that of Pharisees, he's not saying do what they did, but do it better. It's not that the Pharisees didn't try hard enough. It's, not, it's that they were really trying hard at the wrong things. 
They're missing the point entirely, focusing on external behaviors to give people's praises while neglecting to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. The scribe and the Pharisees didn't do the Father's will, period. And if you want to see how they treated God's command, you can read Matthew 5, 21 through 48, where they how, you saw how they fasted and prayed and gave alms. They, they did it in a way that judged others and made themselves seem better and puffed themselves up. Their righteousness wasn't, wasn't a sincere attempt to please God. It was self-promoting. So doing the Father's will isn't just an external thing. The Pharisees looked clean on the outside, but inside they were dirty. And so what Jesus describes here is a righteousness that flows from a pure heart and a sincere faith. It's fruit. It's fruit that comes from a good tree. It's the kind of righteousness that can only practice when you've been born again through the Spirit of God. And, and Jesus isn't telling us to out-Pharisee the Pharisees, nor is he saying we must keep the Sermon on the Mount perfectly in order to be true Christians. On the contrary, according to the Sermon on the Mount, a true Christian is someone who continually prays, Father, forgive me, or continually goes to the Father as his source. A true citizen trusts in their Father's good love to keep them. The narrow path is for those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who hunger for righteousness, those will be satisfied. So doing the Father's will isn't some impossible standard. Basically, doing the Father's will is, are you a child of God? A child of God lives in dependence. It's not as if Jesus, my son Josiah, did anything to be my son. He did nothing to earn it, did nothing to deserve it. He just is my son by his dependence, his need, and by the fact that I chose and he chooses to live in his sonship. My people, you, if you, this, this verse challenges you, if you're struggling with this, can I just tell you this, that those who know Jesus, those who have brought into the kingdom, those who are family, the rest of the Bible says that your salvation cannot be taken away from you. You are co-heirs with Christ. Rest assured. But if your foundation is found and your basis of identity in the kingdom is found by the great deeds you do or by the way you judge others or the holiness that you think you can perform on your own, then I worry for you. But if it's found in the fact that you know you're a child of God because He loves you, He's a good Father, He chose you, and you choose to rest in that. What we stand here is that this passage is speaking to those who've never known, never truly known Jesus' authority. Jesus has foundation for their faith in God as a good Father. For those of us who know Jesus, who choose to trust in Him, the kingdom is ours. Jesus is our foundation, and what a firm foundation He is. Jesus is the rock of ages cleft for me. He is my firm foundation. I know I can stand secure. And I'll be honest with you guys, I almost, everything, I couldn't, like, all I want to do is bust out in the song right there. How good is that foundation? That it's not built on how much better than I am than anybody else. It's not built on following the philosophies of this world that come and go. But it's built on not even my own ability to keep the law, but it's built on God's good love as a good, good father. I love how it goes from here into this idea of building a foundation. And I'm not a builder by any means, but I believe it is fairly common knowledge that building on a firm foundation is of the utmost importance in building a secure, safe, and lasting structure. Jesus is calling us to build on the foundation of Him and that, he, and that He was sent by a good, good Father. He is the narrow path, the true prophet, the one who can judge. And here at the end of Matthew 7, Jesus gives us an illustration of two builders, one who built on the words and promises of Jesus. 
on being known by God and trusting that He is a good, good Father. That is a house built on the rock. Their other home is built on religiosity or self-reliance like the Pharisees, or even philosophies of the world like the Gentiles. This home is built on sand. David Platt says this, The houses look the same but have different foundations. The difference in the foundations is we are not doing what Christ tells us. If it's the difference in the standards, it's a religious lifestyle that people conform to. We have taken threads of the word and pieced them together and highlighted certain parts above other parts and constructed our own religion that we have to conform to the externals of. These were religious people who had taken parts of what the Bible has said uh, about salvation and not followed through. We have constructed religious houses built on foundation of sand. That sand may look like accepting Jesus into your life and even praying and being baptized. What we've done is assume salvation without a biblical foundation. We've assumed you can pray the prayer now and get, obe- get to obedience of Christ's commands later. That we can accept Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. This has great potential disaster. The house fell and great was the fall. I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. That many may go down the path that leads to destruction. David Platt continues, My goal is not to scare, frighten, or confuse. My goal is to awaken and to warn as Jesus warned. What we're not looking for is a quick fix that will make you feel better about your salvation when you leave here. This is a broad road to destruction. I'm not saying there is no prayer involved in salvation or that you did what or that you did wrong. I'm just saying that we've turned it into a road prayer where we did like a box check that will guarantee that we go to heaven. And what he's saying here is that what we've done is we've trivialized the foundation and said, eh, let's just say a quick prayer, let's check a box and you're good. But what actually what Jesus is saying to you is that for you, if you have a foundation to build on that firm foundation of knowing God as Father, is that you practically need to put your faith into action and build upon it. So for you, listening to this sermon today, what are you building your foundation of, your life and your salvation on, your identity on? Do you look around and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as other people, and at least I'm not as bad as those people in jail or these criminals, or at least I'm not as bad as my friend or my neighbor? <laughs> That's sand. It is your own created morality. Do you listen to the philosophies of this world and culture and put your hope in them? It's sand. They're here today and gone tomorrow. It will not support your house when sickness strikes. It won't support your building when you lose a loved one and when you've lost everything. Hear me, Jesus is our foundation. Choosing to know God as a creator who pursues us and is our good father. Asking and living a life of prayer in dependence on him. Trusting that my only means of salvation, my only means of having right relationship with God is the fact that he's a good father who knows me, chose me, and loved me. And I have the righteousness of Jesus as my own. Trusting that he is good and he knows you loves you, and he called you to be with him forever. That, when you build upon that, that stands the test of any flood, rain, or wind. And so when life comes at you, it takes away all that you hold dear in this world, where it takes your health and your loved ones away, where it takes your security of your economics away, your finances away, where it takes away your job, where it takes everything away, you can still hold secure to the fact that you can still be known in this world that your own, just your actions alone doesn't drive your salvation, but instead is driven and riding confidently in the fact that God is good and He knows you and He loves you. And as you build on that, as you trust in that, that you build so securely that it's no longer a wobbly house, but the structure that you live, the structure that you build can test, take any test that this world has to throw on us.
My people, what are we building on? Who's your authority? What's your foundation? May it be on the good Father who knows you and loves you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us to the philosophies of the world or leave us to a righteousness that we can never attain to. But you give us Jesus. And through the work of Jesus, you call us to righteousness. You place his righteousness upon us. You've sent us salvation through the promise-keeping God of the covenant. God, that you've kept all your promises. That you stood in the half of our brokenness, God. And you called us to yourself. God, we thank you for the goodness of the whole gospel. May our foundation be set in the fact that, God, you are good. And you are loving. And you are our Father. And you chose to know us. You chose to love us. And you chose to call us. And nothing can separate us from your love. There is no power on earth or under the earth or in heaven above that can separate us from love, your love for us. So may our security, our identity be bound up in that. May we build on that as our foundation. May that first be our foundation and everything else may be built up on that. Move in our midst, God. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.